Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr, you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Thanks for tuning into this episode, hope you enjoy it. So I've got literal a metaphorical trip down memory lane with this episode. I'm chatting to US snowboarding photographer, founder of Nemo Design and all-round industry legend Trevor Graves. Now I know Trevor a little bit through snowboarding, and I briefly caught up with him in person back in autumn 2019 when Toza and I were in Portland for that week-long Portland omnibus, which really does feel like it was in another era, which I guess it was pre-COVID and all that. Now, on that trip, we chatted to Mark Lumen, uh, Trevor's partner at Nemo. And the plan was always to speak to Trevor for an episode at some point. And so it came to pass in June 2020 that I finally made it happen. Now, this isn't the first time I've interviewed Trevor. I actually chatted to him back in 2015 for a White Lines Roots piece. And in the course of researching this, I went back to that story. And you know what? The intro that I wrote is still really relevant. So I'm just going to read a chunk of it out here. Does this count as plagiarism? Can you plagiarize yourself? I guess we're about to find out. Anyway, here's what I wrote. If you think about it, we're at a pretty unique point in snowboarding history right now. Nope, I'm not talking about the freestyle production lines churning out ever younger tech shredders like so many tweaking automatons. Instead, I'm talking about the direct line to shred history we have thanks to those veterans that can track firsthand the sports rise from the domain of solitary backyard tinkerers to the tectonic plate shifting Olympic super sport it is today. Like venerable Tommies reminiscing about the Somme, we'd be wise to harvest their unparalleled insights while we still can. For this select handful of shredding Z-Ligs, accepted snowboarding history has almost perfectly complemented their own riding careers. In the States, Jake Burton and Terry Kidwell obviously spring to mind. In Europe, you've got Regis Roland and Peter Bauer, among others. But on the other side of the lens, for my money, only snowboarding photographer Trevor Graves can match this depth of experience and personal achievement. Sure, others have similarly well-stocked archives, Bud Fawcett and Pascal Scalp Gomber among them, but only Graves has remained relevant every step of the way. Talk to Trevor for 90 minutes, as I did, and the conversation is likely to take in personal reminiscences that are, coincidentally, the milestones of our very culture. Still stands up, eh? A bit wordy. But then, you know, I've been being told I'm a bit wordy since I was about eight. So I've, I've kind of... I'm living with that one, to be honest. But it still stands up. And we did indeed in this conversation run the rule, as they say in football transfer circles, over Trevor's incredible career in snowboarding, which does indeed include copious reminiscences about working with Craig, Jake, Brushy and so on. We also chatted at length about Trevor's post-shred career at Nemo and his general life as an entrepreneur over three decades of great change. This one unfolds in its own sweet time. So I implore you to stick with it. It's a lovely weighty episode with one of our culture's great unsung heroes, which I enjoyed very much. But then I always do enjoy chatting shit about snowboarding with guests. And this is one of those occasions. I'll be back at the end. In the meantime, here's me and Trevor. Enjoy.
we're rolling. So how are you, Trevor? I am good. How are you today, Matt? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's, uh, it's finally stopped raining. So, you know, all good. Yeah. Kind of. And we're in the middle. I think I said on the email, didn't I? We're in the middle of uh, football frenzy in the country. Yeah. So uh, we got another big game tonight, actually. So quite looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, I'm all right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Last time we saw each other was very briefly in Portland. I'm going to say 18 months ago, just pre COVID. Um, and yeah, it's a bit of a different scene now. How is it over there? How's it been for you? It's been, um, yeah, good thing, bad thing. Who knows? It's, um, a life experience you get to live through and having your quiver of stories to tell at dinner to friends and family, because everybody's going to have, um, their story to share. It's like, where were you when nine 11 happened? And that seems so minuscule, uh, compared to this past 15, 18 months of, uh, the pandemic and the lockdown and just all the, um, insanity that has transpired as a result of this, uh, uncomfortable, uh, situation that it put us all in as a society and Portland, especially, I think we kind of made the news. I'm, uh, with all the uh, hundred days of protests and, and riots. And I just remember in the heat of it, just, I think I ended up answering 24 calls from friends around the world, just going, Hey, what's going on? And, you know, you pretty much had your, a list of, uh, you know, bullet points to give them comfort, to let them know that we're safe and we're going to be okay. Yeah, and how how is it in Portland now? Because it did it did make the news over here. Yeah, it was like, um, you know, we the way we heard it, it was like a focal point for the, I guess like the initially the Black Lives Matter protests, right? Is that is that correct? Is that yeah? Is that, that how... was that was part of it. It's um, yeah, that was part of the part of the um, we'll call it unrest here in town. You know, I think. Portland's a pretty liberal city and there's uh, a lot of tolerances for people of, you know, different faiths, beliefs, um, ideologies and politics, etc. And I think with the pressure of the lockdowns and, and what COVID put upon the society, our, our community, it just all the ugly stuff just reared its head and it just got out of hand. Um, and just people weren't, uh, didn't really come together as a community to kind of fight an evil uh, battle with COVID. They just got selfish and um, self-righteous and just started acting out in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm half embarrassed and just half like, that's just the way it goes. I think if you're going to have a, a society with tolerance, you kind of have to uh, allow some of that to happen, but then there's kind of a line where, all right, enough's enough. Like, especially when some of the hypocrisy start to happen and, um, and some of their agendas and what they do. So yeah, pick a topic. It's like, it's so broad in my head and they've seen so much this year. I just don't even know where to begin. I don't want to bore people either with, you know, news that they've already heard. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's the whole, it's the whole like podcast, Hey, COVID chat, but on that on that point though, like I am, I am interested in, in how, cause obviously you run Nemo, like, and we will get to your, um, snowboarding career 
as a photographer sure. and as somebody that's been involved in the culture for, you know, intrinsically for so long. But I am interested because, you know, I'm a business owner as well. Um, and mm-hmm. certainly I've got my experiences of what the last uh, 15 months, as you said, have been like. And I remember really clearly like one day being like, oh shit (laughs) just from the business point of view you know being like wow okay this is this is not what i thought it was and suddenly like right battle stations you know how like how are we gonna what what are we doing so i'm just intrigued from the from the nemo perspective like how that was for you because i imagine if it was anything like it was for me imagine it was quite stressful wow that's a great question on the you know, how did Nemo as a unit respond to the um, early days of the pandemic? We'll call it March. And for us, uh, we're, we're 25 people, uh, full-time employees here at Nemo Design. We have a quiver of freelancers that we tap uh, for special projects, etc. cetera. And uh, it was March 13th. We sent everybody home. Uh, city in many, many, many places in the country just sort of said that's it's a it's officially a pandemic, and we obviously wanted to keep people safe. We didn't understand what we didn't understand at that time, and um, the safest place was home. So, yeah, it was it was strange. Like everybody goes, but you kind of think, oh, it'll be a couple weeks, maybe a month. I think was the initial thought, and then um, I remember April 9th, They actually grabbed a couple of the guys, Jess Gibson from Robot Food, uh, shares an office with us. And we went out and painted the outside of the building. Oh, let's make it look nice while the parking lot's empty so we can get at, you know, accessibility to the building. We'll just do stuff around the building that when everybody's here, it's kind of hard to do. So we're just kind of making the best use of that time. And um, for me, it's creature comfort. I, I separate it's part of the freelance photo thing too, that I learned a hard way was just separating church and state and just that is separating my work life from my home and family life. Um, so I just came Why, into work. That's have you, man- that's have you just a, just a quick one. Have you managed that? <laughs> have you managed that? Yeah, separation? actually I do actually. Um, I do actually, I'm pretty disciplined on an intentional with my time and things that I do. So, um, it's taken some time for me to figure it out. And there's things I will do at home, i.e. like research or if I'm reading articles or a book or something, I'll read some of that stuff at home. But uh, for the most part, when I'm home, I'm home. You know, I'm working on house projects. I'm making yeah. dinner for the kids. I'm exercising um, and uh, talking, talking with the wife and the kids. So, yeah, that's important, um, I think, as a human to be able to have your a balance and it never is in balance. Let's be honest with it, but um, uh, to make sure that that is a priority or else it won't be there. Yeah. Yeah. I need to, to get some tips from you. I think still not quite managed, <laughs> managed, ma- managed that one. Right. So you, so you were quite intentional. You were like, okay, this is happening. And then after yep. a month or so you kind of presumably realized that it was um, well, what did you realize? Yeah. Well, we, um, we did a baby pool, you know, a baby pool is you kind of bet when the birth date will be for your pregnant friends. Right. And so yeah. we we're all kind of making bets on when this would be over. And, uh, you know, my homework was saying, oh, this isn't going to be over until October. So I said, Halloween. 
my other colleagues, you know, they were a month or two, but nobody was predicting, you know, literally 15 months and we're still not back to a hundred percent. So, um, you know, it, March hit and the, and the irony is, is that we at NEMA work on the icon ski pass. Uh, it's starting to infiltrate, uh, Europe and we did a, um, Mark Lumen, our creative director, my business partner here came up with a treatment and, you know, with the timing of these creative concepts, it takes, you know, you got to get away ahead of it before it actually is produced and then hits the market. Right. So yeah, gosh, it was September, let's call it 2020, no 19. We had concepted and literally this is the front page of the presentation deck to Eric and team was, um, you had the visual of, of, uh, Chinese news, and it says pandemic. <laughs> Literally, that was the first slide of our presentation. And so the concept was um, that everybody has left the city to run up to the mountains to go skiing. And so you'll see things like in Los Angeles that are normally super crowded, empty. Freeways were empty. The mall was empty. You know, the street sign guy is tossing his sign around and nobody's there. And it's crickets in the city. And... Um, that didn't fly. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, I think we had 88 people on that set down in Los Angeles to build this commercial. And then, uh, you know, by, you know, we all went to the OR show in Denver and we're still proving it, building out the concept, you know, February, it was kind of finalized. And, and by March we, we buy the media and we post it and this pandemic was brewing and, to Eric's credit, he said, this is not politically correct. Let's not run this. Let's go back and rework the creative concept. And, um, and we did. So with that kept us busy in March, but, um, after that it was crickets. It was the scariest time in the 21 years of Nemo's history that I thought we might fail. Uh, there was no work coming in the building. Nike shut down. Um, all our clients just went dark. So we were at 10% billings for April. And, you know, the um, I'm a part of this entrepreneurs organization here in, in the States and in Portland particularly. And it's through this business group that I learned about uh, uh, PPP program, which basically was the, um, the government kind of subsidizing uh, the payroll uh, for a certain amount of time based on uh, your head count and your numbers for the year prior. So instantly dove into that and tried to figure it out and got our team involved in the accounting side. Uh, Jeff and Jessica figured it out. And then we got this money to kind of subsidize the people and just keep their head count going. Basically we we're unemployment insurance for the, for everybody at our shop. And uh, that was a blessing really that kind of kept us in business just long enough to to turn things back on. And I think March, April, May it started kicking back into gear. And then it's just been just going, we just been getting more and more work uh, to actually our, our forecast currently is uh, larger than our 2019 uh, numbers. So we're recovered. We didn't lose any people in the uh, lockdown. We were able to convert to, remote working instantaneously. I think the nature of our business allows it to happen. We, um, 
ditched our central server that lives here inside the physical building at Nemo and then went to a Google Cloud system, bought laptops for people. They took their big monitors for the animation and uh, editing people, took the big the big towers home. Uh, a lot of stand-up desks went home. And so we were able to you know, figure it out through Slack and Zoom uh, to keep communicating. And I think because our culture is so connected as a team, um, this is, you know, with agencies, it's sort of like, I'll, I'll use the basketball analogy. Like you had that year with um, Jordan and Pippen at the Bulls and they couldn't lose, right? It was just a great team. And then once those guys left and they were in a, re- you know, a rebuilding cycle, we'll call yeah. it at the Bulls. The and our agency has gone through that too, where we'll, um, you know, you have some great creative leaders and then sometimes they bounce, they move, they start their own agency and then you kind of have to rebuild, but we're definitely in the, in the bulls program with this team currently and, um, just kicking ass and taking numbers. So they're all, you know, that trust was already built. And so when we went remote, uh, there was, it was, you know, it's so hard to have a, a brainstorm, um, not live. You know, it's those pauses and body language and all these things that kind of really make the juices flow to come out with good creative. And that's what people pay us to do is come up with original creative concepts. And it's and uh, we were able to figure it out through through the technology. And I'm very thankful that all that stuff was ready for all of us uh, in yeah, this lockdown really- in order to keep going, right? It's a really good point that because you you imagine if this had hit 20 years ago, I mean, Jesus, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. like, and we didn't have this infrastructure in place to kind of like, as you say, cope quickly, scale quickly, creatively take it Mm -hmm. online. If you didn't have that, then that would have, I mean, Jesus, you don't even want to think about what the impact would have been on businesses and the economy really would have been a different game, I think. We'd all figured it out. That's, I think, the the nature of human beings is just just figure it out. Yeah. So how <laughs> I'm interested because as an entrepreneur, you mm-hmm. do take these things. They're quite. They can be quite tied to your self esteem, can't they? You know, like the success of your work, the success of your business. And I'm interested in how it affected you personally because obviously you've got a lot of responsibility. You just you just outlined, you know, 25 people. Suddenly you've got. That, that you know you're like shit you know these people are relying on me to make rent that's the day-to-day reality of being an entrepreneur uh-huh. um and from the outside it looks like nemo's kind of been very successful from day one i mean i'm sure that's you know you'll obviously know the the ins and outs but um and as you said like this is the first time that you've been faced with the the, the prospect of of it failing so how was that for you like was that something that you could could you, can you separate that in the same way as you mentioned you could separate church and state as the way you put it? Could you could you kind of separate it from your self-esteem or was was that a challenge for you? Huh, that's a good point of view. It's like um Yeah, you're yourself yeah, your self actualization becomes part tied and linked to Nemo for us, it's the company. Um, and in entrepreneurship, it's interesting because you have lifestyle businesses and, um, and then you have basically, you know, hardcore companies 
that have all these processes to make them run, whether you're there or not. And so I think agencies end up really being lifestyle businesses because uh, they're so emotional. Um, maybe they don't need to be, but probably the better ones are. And yeah, I was, you know, when you said, you said the question, like I got curious again, thinking in that April that we were going to fail and, um, you know, it's sad. It's just sad to think about it. But I also know that um, we, the three, there's three guys that own this company and we all decided that we're going to do whatever it takes to help everybody safely get through this as best as we could afford. And that was keeping the health insurance in place and, um, you know, salaries coming so that nobody would get evicted and all those kind of things. Cause all the other rules weren't kind of set yet from the government as to those kind of deals. So we had set up a nice cash, uh, cow or a nice cash reserve for the business. We've been very disciplined like that. There's that old, um, fairy tale of the three little pigs, you know, you got the house out of hay, house out of sticks and a house out of bricks. We got a house out of bricks, plenty of reserve, and um, we could weather the storm for probably a couple of years if we had to with that team. And we were willing to uh, lose that money, millions, um, to be able to kind of keep it going for those folks. Um, but that's how we're going to retire, too. That's so that brick house and that cash reserves is, you know, our retirement money, really. And so that was on the line. So. You know, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to work at Burger King until I'm 80 <laughs> if I lose all this money right now in this pandemic. Um, so, yeah, it really tests you as to what's important and um, what you're going to do as a leader uh, in these hard situations. And there was definitely, you know, in my business groups, too, you could see uh, selfish, you know, just selfish leadership and not empathetic leadership on some of the folks here in town. They just uh, fired people, got rid of them, went on vacation to their summer house at the coast. Like uh, they definitely took care of number one, first and foremost, and kind of let the others kind of hang. So I didn't want to be that leader and didn't, and the other guys didn't want to either. So we didn't do that. We, we, we kept people, kept people employed, even the airlines, like they, they fired Alaska or American airlines here in the States right now is canceling flights. Cause they fired all of their pilots. And here's a company that's got billions in reserves and they fired the pilots just to save the money on that, on that payroll. And now they're, it's, it's um, biting them in the butt because they didn't think ahead or they didn't want to make the, financial risk to keep those quality people uh, employed even if they weren't flying. So I think they got what they deserved. Well, it's like you say though, you know, what you sell is culture, isn't it? You know, as an agency, the cult you are, the, the culture is mm-hmm. that you've created and the culture where you come from, the three of you and the people that you employ, they amount to a unique culture and that's you can't just get rid of that can you you know like like you say like if you just for a business like yours 
there will be repercussions if you if you act that way so you need to protect it because mm-hmm. essentially that's what you've built isn't it it's not just a business it's like an idea really isn't it you know nemo some like a business like that it's a concept really it's like a way of i mean i'm i'm kind of being a bit presumptuous in what i'm saying because i'm almost putting words in your mouth but again from the outside it seems like the whole point is the culture and the concept and the and the the creative all those things tied together you know which is which is the other reason why i'm intrigued as to sort of as i just asked like your you know how how it affected you when that was threatened but yeah i mean of course you're going to try and protect that because that's what you've built that was the point wasn't it right yeah and um it's funny to stick things work themselves out there's no right or wrong answer if the whole thing had failed and we had to start over, that was just meant to be. You just have to accept that moment in time and just keep moving forward. Um, and I think we, we got lucky. We got lucky. And I think part of it isn't that luck at all. I think we, we, we were very intentional in building the culture and taking care of the people the way we did. And so it's taking care of us in return. And so I think that's why we've had such a, we'll call a hockey stick rebound and recovery as a, as a business. So we chatted for a White Lines interview uh, six years ago because I refreshed my memory um, by rereading that interview just before we did this. So we chatted for uh, Roots, which is the kind of retrospective look back. Um, And I had a quick look at that again earlier because it is online. It's funny, isn't it? Completely forgot about it. And then it's like, ah, it's still all there. So I'll put a link to that. Um, and yeah, it's really, really interesting rereading that because obviously, I mean, it'd be great before I get into specific questions. Um, you know, your background's photography, obviously you came up in the early eighties. Is that right? Um, Late on the 80s, East probably as a shooter, but, 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 it, but in snowboarding and skateboarding, are we talking early, early eighties oh, yeah. East coast? Yeah. East coast. Um, I was probably, yeah, probably skateboarding. I, I don't know. Gosh, I'm dating myself, but that's okay, right? 78, probably. I got, um, you know, you had your little skateboards from the store, but I had a real skateboard, a Dogtown, West Homestead. That was 78, 79. Uh, it was probably the first big board I got. And this was, and so where did you, where did you first sort of see this culture? Where did you come, where did you come across this? Uh, skateboarding. Um, my best friend in high school, one of my best friends, Ronnie Bruno, uh, he would leave upstate New York, go down to Clearwater, Florida uh, on Easter break and skateboard at the Clearwater skate park there. And lo and behold, when he would skate, he would be skating with Mike McGill and Alan Gelfin. Um, who later went on to be who they are. Alan Gelfin Alan, invented Alan the Gelf- Ollie Air. Alan, Alan Gelfin. I mean, Jesus Christ. Doesn't get any more. Right? <laughs> Doesn't get any right? more legit so Ronnie, <laughs> But they weren't. And Mike McGill wasn't Mike McGill yet. He was just a really good guy skating at that park. And, um, you know, gosh, these guys are, you know, what? Gosh, teens, early teens. And then, um, so what? the way it would work back then, again, there's no internet. There's no... There's no magazine other than skateboarder magazine. So Ronnie would bring skateboarder magazine home to us in upstate 
and we would thumb through that magazine until it was just there was just grease from our hands all over the thing pages are worn out pages are falling out because they've just been you know we just could thumb through these things because that was the only uh, sense of what skateboarding culture is and there's no video to show you what the tricks are so ronnie would have to he'd see it and then he'd bring it back and so we were trying to learn um through him so it's sort of like a, a game of telephone he would see Mike McGill and Alan Gelfin do a trick, and then he didn't know how to do it, but he tried to bring it home, and we'd practice on his ramp. So that was sort of how we figured out skateboarding. But I think that's the magic of it, too, is that every region would misinterpret or make their own interpretation of what they think skateboarding is and even snowboarding is later uh, in the timeline. And that doesn't happen as much anymore because everything's so immediate with uh, – our social feeds is to this is exactly how you can copy this trend <laughs> yeah i really i really love that about the history of particularly skating snow because you had these like and especially in the states i've been lucky enough to sort of speak to a lot of people about the history over there and i really yeah like satellite scenes that were obviously connected by the media that was available but because that was so infrequent then it is a local interpretation that creates that scene, isn't it? And creates like the uniqueness mm -hmm. of that scene, um, yep. which is, you know, when you look back at those formative years of the culture, it's obviously like what really created the wider picture, isn't it really? You know, especially when these scenes, then if you take the case of snowboarding, as 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 snowboarding develops, then start to sort of connect and, and cross-pollinate between each other. Well, which it's kind of a live you were obviously well, a, key a live part example of... of us right oh sorry i was just making an analogy of dialects right we're both speaking english but you have a much cooler accent than i do <laughs> and even in the uh and it's a dialect right of the same we're we are interpreting the language uh, based on our filters and where we live and where we come from and i remember even for a kid in the new york city you know the, the boroughs they're very close together in new york city and there was you could tell um, just by people's accent or where they're from. But I think skateboarding and snowboarding were accents of, um, of the, let's say the core sport. And I think that was more magical or more special back then. You didn't know you were living that way, but it was now when I look back on it, it was pretty precious that everybody had their own interpretation of, of what skateboarding is. Just as an aside on that, cause it's such an interesting point before we get back to your story who do you see now that manifests in that way? Like it could be an athlete. It could be a scene. It could be a style. You know, you're obviously a keen observer still of what's going on. I mean, and, and people listening and I certainly understand what you mean about the way that, that, the, you know, the makeup of the scene as we described lent itself to these particular interpretations. Cause obviously when you think back as well, you can, you know, name, endless amounts of riders who had the style to match that and like, you know, became the people that drove the style. So who, so now in the, in the area that we're in, where obviously, like you say, it's a bit more immediate, it's more difficult, let's say, to kind of carve a unique style. Like who, who do you see that kind of harks back to that ethos? Hmm. That's interesting. So Back to that ethos. I think there's, well, I think what's really magical is everybody kind of takes their interpretation. 
of it and makes it their own. And then they mix and mash all the things that they like from each one of the generations. Like let's call it snowboarding in general uh, to come up with something new or at least a, a newer version of something old. Um, like right now in town, you know, and his person, Keaton, uh, Keaton Rogers is a guy in town. He kind of reminds me of um, the robot food era. Uh, and then there's a little bit of like, I don't know, early 80s, maybe. Maybe I know it's actually early, yeah, early 80s mixed with that, let's call it mid 90s robot food kind of flavor um, to what they, how they interpret the fun of snowboarding. Yeah. I got to meet that guy um, here at, at Nemo. We have, uh, it's, it's more of a BMX spot, but a skate spot. It's in our loading dock out front. And we had a big snowstorm and Keaton and his crew came through and um, we're sessioning it. So it's really fun to just go out and shoot the shit with those guys and just see where they're at. And, um, and with all the technology now with like immediacy of, you know, shooting 4K on a, phone and editing immediately and posting to your social all instagram uh facebook yada yada it's all done now is that good or bad like i don't know kind of it forces you to have to think of something new or you burn out quicker i don't know if you burn out quicker because you just churn through stuff faster i don't know it's hard to say is that a good thing a bad thing who knows it's just a different is. thing, I guess, isn't it? Because yeah, especially when you can, when you when you compare the the particular circumstances at the point of you know you discovered snowboarding and then subsequently started to shoot it. I mean, very very different um, parameters, let's say. So when did you when did snowboarding sort of come along for you then? Snowboarding came as a direct result of. Syracuse, New York winters. So again, if I've discovered, uh, I was a late bloomer, small guy. Uh, I did okay at sports and sort of, I think in upstate, you know, sports is how you kind of, I don't know, you get identify yourself quickly. You're on a team as a medium, medium athlete. So I wasn't a superstar, but I didn't suck either. I was kind of okay. And then there's that skateboarding DNA. And so that's so much fun to skate. But when it snows, we're under snow in Syracuse four months out of the year. What do you do? And then I'd seen these pictures of um, Steve Caballero on those early yellow um, Sims, like Sims snowboards, but it had a Lonnie Toft skateboard deck attached to the top of it. I don't know if you've seen those. Yeah, yeah. But he was ollieing and... Um, you know, it's Steve Caballero, dude. It was super cool. So, oh, his cab's doing it. I should check it out. And then you get in and you start seeing a couple of pictures and um, Action Now magazine of other guys snowboarding out west. And um, it looked fun because it's snow. And so when you fall, you didn't get road rash and masonite burns and uh, and look like you could go bigger. And so this is where I love the misinterpretations because video really wasn't invented yet or it was just starting to happen but you kind of see it and then you try to figure it out and then um, interpret it to what you had available in front of you but i think i made a my first snowboard was a garage sale snowboard i had i found a pair of wooden skis at a garage sale and then i uh, took u-bolts and hooked it 
you know, I, dug, I put some countersink holes and then I U-bolted the thing to the bottom of my skateboard. And I put these, we had these, uh, my sister had some roller skates that you put on your sneakers and they had these air, um, what do they call them? Sky hooks kind of deal. Yeah. So I hooked yeah, those yeah, on yeah. the skateboard deck to kind of keep my feet in there because the grip tape got instantly iced up. I didn't realize that that would happen, but you could have put your foot in the sky hooks and then you kind of go down the hill. And I thought when you um, I read somewhere, because I didn't grow up in a skiing family either, and uh, I knew you wax skis. Somebody said it. So I literally was taking candle wax and melting it on the skis to make it go. But that paraffin didn't really interpret. It didn't, didn't work. It just made the board stick. Um, but, you know, you're trying. And then you see a picture of that cab board. And I remember going into shop class and trying to bend plywood and, and um, just make something that would go. But uh, the wooden board never got... Uh, slick enough. I remember trying to put um, uh, sheet metal on the bottom to maybe make it go faster, but it never really worked. And then um, our bike store, what the heck was it called? I don't, I don't remember the detail. Um, they ended up having a Burton snowboard for sale. So it was, um, what the, it was the red and black one. And it didn't have high back bindings just had these fast act clips on it. So he had one in the window at Christmas time. And you're like, you're looking at that thing. Like it's a red rider BB gun. Like, man, that thing looks so cool. It was $350. And this is probably 1981, maybe 82. So that wasn't in my future, but um, yeah. So that was kind of that we started standing up on our sleds and, Everything is trying to make a snowboard on anything just to try to get down the hill. And was it going to be skateboarding? Was it going to be surfing? I think that was, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you don't know that that um, evolution's happening, but it started to happen. And and because we we're skateboarders and not skiers, I think that had a lot to do with what snowboarding ended up being in a lot of ways from a lot of different uh, parts of the of the country. I remember when we were talking a few years back, you mentioned a friend of yours called Scott Klum as being yep. very, very important, influential. And you, you, we ran an amazing shot from, I guess, like, you know, one of those early, mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word pipes, but can't really call it a pipe. Nope. It's it's just a, set, like a spot that you would presumably session, right? Um, is he on a Sims board, maybe? Am I remembering that correctly? You, you, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah, yep. and he's no, I... like iconic mid '80s kind of representation yep. of freestyle snowboarding at that point. So this is presumed. So was yep. shooting coming in for you at this time then as well? Like you, this is where you were picking up a camera as well and starting to document everything. Yep, this is a that's sort of a great um, a great segue actually. So the year is probably '85. Yeah, 1985. I'm going to. Uh, uh, college in Utica, New York, called Mohawk College, and taking a program called Advertising Design and Production. And at the school, I meet, uh, and it's funny because everybody goes, "Oh, you got to meet that blonde-haired guy that skateboards." And he and Scott was going to the fine art um, school, which was at a different campus. But you know, you point him out, and sooner or later, because you're on a skateboard, and I had a skateboard. 
you know, it's like you're instantly buddies. It was the magic of that time. It's like, yeah, that can never be recreated. It's just those original days where everybody kind of, you put aside your, uh, any, any things, any differences that you probably had, you'd put aside just because you had a one really strong connection through, um, board sports. So that really is a gift that I was given in that era. And that I don't, I, I think people feel a little bit of it, but I think I, our generation really got to enjoy, um, that camaraderie, that kinsmanship. Cause you know, snowboarding was still illegal. Uh, wasn't allowed on hills. Insurance companies were frowning upon it. Um, it's still a fledgling industry. Is it going to, you know, are Jake Burton and Tom Sims going to financially have enough cash to kind of keep it moving? You know, all that stuff was happening at that time. So back to Scott, segue back to Scott. So we're at school and he actually had spent time with Tom Sims, who was from New Jersey originally living in Santa Barbara and Scott lived in his tree fort out there. And, um, because he was into skateboarding and so Tom was doing the snowboarding thing. So Scott brought his boards back to New York. So now you bring in Sims product and this is the East coast, West coast battle it. I'm sure most of the publications have documented and talked about pretty well. Uh, and you're coming into Burton country with a Sim snowboard. So it's not like anybody hates on you, but you definitely go, Whoa, there's a Sims board. They're like hard to get. It's sort of the, uh, um, yeah, they just didn't see a lot of Sims boards back then. And Scott, actually, that board that's in that picture had steel edges. And I learned that it was done by uh, a person, a woman, I think, up at K2 Skis at the time. Tom made three or four of those boards with steel edges and P-Tex um, on those FE1500s. And so <clears throat> the way we did that was Scott had scouted out this um, farmer's lot and the winds blew and the snow came in and, and it blew a cornice. And Scott had been riding with uh, Mike Chantry, Terry Kidwell, Alan Armbruster, all those guys in Tahoe. So with the first video I saw of freestyle snowboarding was um, through Mike Chantry's bootlegged videotapes that he would shoot at those sessions. And so um, that's how we interpreted snowboarding was as skateboarding so yeah we made a quarter pipe and i hadn't shot you know photography was part of the program so i'm what 19 years old picking up a camera really for the first time my sister had a minolta x370 had some tri-x film in there and um i had um they call work study to help you pay and finance school so my job was to basically manage the photo lab so i had the key so we drive out to Utica, hit this quarter pipe, shoot the pictures, midnight, get back to the lab, open up the lab, process the film, make contact sheets and prints. And at three in the morning, you're looking at, you know, five by seven, eight by 10 pictures of us uh, that day. So it was like immediate gratification. And what a, a that was sort of the catapult for, for both of us in snowboarding. I, mean, I love that shot. I'm going to have to dig it out if, if, or maybe you could it's, it me. is one of my favorite you know i'm very um modest about some of the, sh the work and, and these days but there's you know 20 25 shots that you just look at and go yep that's a classic and that one is definitely one of my favorites and definitely helped us get on the map uh 
and have people pay attention because Scott sent that off to Tom Sims and then Tom introduced me to Tom Shea who had International Snowboard Magazine and subsequently led me to be the East Coast correspondent for International Snowboard Magazine by 1988. Ah, so, that's how it happened. So that was like the, the, the break, if you like, into the kind of yep. industry and the the publishing side totally. of things. Because I, I remember the other thing that really struck me from our last conversation was how you grabbed the opportunity by, by the sounds of it, like a pretty fearsome work ethic because you were describing how you know, you were shooting and riding, but then also, cause you know, necessarily as a photographer back then, it was a lot more work, <laughs> you know, you having to like develop everything. And it was like, you know, the out, the hours involved to like, to actually get the goods at the end, very involving. And I remember being impressed by the, you know, you, I remember you saying something to me, like I basically worked it as two jobs. I'd shoot, but then I'd be in the lab and I'd be, taking both of them equally seriously and essentially like banging out work and and you know like getting noticed um so that work ethic obviously when you're in your 20s and you're snowboarding it doesn't really feel like work and you, you know you've just got the gig of, of of like as you've just described um is that how it then progressed into the career that you went on to to enjoy as like a you know, somebody that was essentially documenting the key years of the of the culture and, and snowboarding from that point. The work ethic and how did it translate into uh, the, let's call it 13-year career of shooting snowboarding in the heyday? Is that sort of where we're going? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, yeah. obviously, you, you, like you say, your career covers that era pretty perfectly you know like the yeah. kind of as your as your career developed so did snowboarding and obviously you had a ringside yep. seat you know like you're shooting yep. with craig you're shooting with you know you work for burn you know you'd like you you're able to like mm -hmm. basically but those opportunities only develop in the way that it developed for you if you work very very hard let's put it that simply you know so did yeah. i guess the question is did, was that always there you know, was that always something that you were like, I'm just going to seize this, work. go for it and, and just see where we end up. Yeah. Work ethic, work ethics is a key ingredient and it means different things to different people. And I, I really hadn't thought about it to oppose it that way, but it, it really does boil down to, you know, sort of East coast ethics, a lot of ways it's in, in my father, um, you know, my dad, you know, when you're coming up the ranks, he's like, if you take a job, make sure you show up 15 minutes early to work just in case there's a traffic jam so that you're on time for work. You've promised this employer that you're going to give a solid eight hours of work and in return, he's going to pay you a salary. And that's just a, a handshake and a promise that you make with your employer. And, you know, that was that was the golden rule. And my father lived that every day. Um, my dad worked as a mechanic at Bristol Myers uh, in the packaging plant. So putting basically the medicine in the boxes and keeping those assembly lines running. That's what my dad did for 28 years. And I got to work with him to help actually pay for college and pay for my first snowboard. And uh, that job sucked. 
<laughs> I didn't. They always, they always do did. those jobs. <laughs> oh man. And he did that for so long and it really fed my family and took care of us and, you know, got us on vacations. And it was the lifeline for, for us as a family living in upstate. And, you know, as a little kid, you don't think about what your dad does. You just sort of, you know, Hey, we're going to have fun with dad. We're going to play baseball now or whatever. But, um, he, he did. He, he must've loved us to stick in that job for that long. And that's where you learn the work ethic. And I think it was just socially like to lax at work. You were frowned upon in our, just as a society, I think West coast, California, it's a little more lax as they grew up. And if you look at snowboarding, it's really a lot of East coast work ethic um, that really, really grew the sport in a lot of ways. I'd say if there's 10 figures, a lot of them are out of East coast. You know, Tom Sims originated from Jersey, Jake Burton out of Long Island. You know, those are the two big heavies. And um, even Jeff Brushy, you know, that guy's East Coaster and what he brought to the game uh, for freestyle. But yeah, there's um, the work ethic. And so the other one my dad said too, he goes, don't worry about the money so much, but make sure you like what you do. Because if you come home and you're drunk and you beat your wife because you hate your job, that's not going to be a good life. And so... Uh, you know, my dad's a super simple guy, but there's probably the two big words of wisdom that he shared with me to help me kind of have some good work ethic. But then it's a matter of, um, you know, wanting it bad or just having a very, I have, I have three kids, three adults now, but I think the hardest thing and the thing I could always wish is that you can know what makes you happy or know what drives you or cranks you up. And so that you can kind of focus. I think there's so many choices with the internet. You know, it's almost like debilitating. And you have this perfection paralysis of like, I just don't know what I want to do because there's so many choices. And so I feel bad for, for kids today trying to figure out what to focus on. Back then, I mean, even in school, you're like, oh, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a policeman, a fireman. Like, it was pretty simple. But um, to be the world's best snowboard photographer was the goal, period. 1988, I'm going to be the world's best snowboard photographer in the world, period. There was no magazines yet. Uh, ISM was just starting. My first paycheck was a uh, shot of John Gert and Noah Brandon. I got $5 for that, and and it started. And the, as an entrepreneur, you knew there was going to be an industry there. I, I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant. I couldn't even spell it if I had to, but you knew that by the time I got good enough that there would be an industry there to feed me. Um, and I knew if I was the best at it, I'd be able to make a living at it. And, um, that was good enough. Like I didn't need to be a millionaire. I didn't need to go public or any of those crazy things. That was as simple as the goal was for me. And then anything that was outside of that goal. So I'd ask myself if I go out to the bar tonight and pay 50 bucks and drinks to schmooze these girls, does that help me be the best snowboard photographer in the world? Yes or no? Nope. I'll save the 50 bucks, put it in the gas tank and drive to the mountain on this weekend instead of try to get lucky at the bar. So it's a lot of discipline. That was, you know, you're 20 years old. It's, yeah, I guess there was a lot of discipline to kind of do the things that were required and needed and kind of uncomfortable to get to the, the goal. I always, I always, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with some great snowboard photographers through my career. And I've always thought that it is a quite a blend of entrepreneurialism and creativity. 
yeah. like more than any other role on the creative side of the industry really because you do it is a hustle like constantly especially back then and also <laughs> photographers a lot of responsibility to convey the actual essence of the culture again particularly back then and i you know it's always quite clear to me that you know i'm good friends with nick hamilton for example and growing up i mean he was like that for when he was like 17 you know 16 17 he was just absolutely single-minded determined focused you know with with that and yeah it always struck me as like a kind of key ingredient if you were going to make it in obviously like a fiercely competitive area as well i think photography kind of has it has um a lot of the creative juices i suppose where you have i can't do what i do without the talent in front of me so you're so you have to be personable enough and convincing enough to get people to go out and work in a bad weather day or when they're tired or they're hung over um, and so there's sort of that that part of it is like you're the inspirational coach let's go guys let's get the shot yeah then there's the physical uh physical part of it it's like you have to be a good enough snowboarder and strong enough to carry the gear because you know my pack was probably uh i don't know any kilos but 35 pounds and and you have to keep up with basically olympic athletes that are they're the best in the world and so i was never as good as they but the um you have to be that and then they have to be the uh, team manager in that coordinating and managing the trips and getting everybody on planes and uh, driving them and shuttling them and all the other shenanigans just to get the talent around so you can even take a picture and then there's the salesman that's yeah. um you know talking the magazines into hey let's do this project and then there's the accountant you have to do the budgeting and the taxes and there's just so many facets. Um, yeah, it's very entrepreneurial. And I think if you look like a lot of the leaders in snowboarding were good shooters too. Like Brad Stewart, who um, founded Bonfire Snowboarding, is a good shooter. And so you you got the math and the science and the creativity kind of all wrapped into one, in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's definitely. On that point then, nice segue, because it was actually going to be my next question anyway. You know, photography, photography is a game of partnerships obviously as you just mm -hmm. mentioned um you know working with riders and all photographers definitely have those defining partnerships you know that so and you've been lucky enough to work with you know i mean we could be here all day listing all the legends that you've worked with so um which partnerships do you look back on now as a rider and shooter like most fondly oh the partnerships that helped me along the way uh, I think to launch you know obviously with Scott and his early early connections um, I'm grateful for those in those days then it was brushy and winning um, the worlds over in Europe and that just ignited my fax machine with requests from Germany and Japan and places I always dreamed about traveling to and I was the only guy that had pictures of them. And so that helped me get, um, get on the map. Next was probably um, Team Dookie. That's Jason Ford, Todd Richards, 
Um, those guys work really, really hard. They totally wanted to be pro snowboarders. And I think, and we've seen these type of relationships with, you know, Stacy Peralta and, and um, the Bones Brigade. It's like you have this, you know, media person matched up with the athlete. Uh, it just, they just feed off of each other. So we had that going for us on the East Coast. And gosh, there's so many people. Um, then there's, after that, I probably put in, you know, Brad Stewart actually um, gave my wife at the time a job as the manager of the Morrow brand and the Morrow team and gave us 500 bucks to drive to Oregon uh, to start my life in Oregon. And for me, moving from East Coast to Oregon instantly quadrupled my business and my accessibility to a lot of different brands. Because now I, I sit at Mount Hood where people come all summer long and you continue to shoot. And then, um, you know, flights and driving time to Lake Tahoe and other places that are, you know, Whistler, other places that are awesome. Uh, I was right there now. Then I'd say there's... Um, you know, Michael Jagger from JDK, uh, Jagger to Paul Kemp agency that was doing a lot of the Burton work as a creative director. Um, him, Jared, um, Jim Infuso, those guys really helped me understand what a creative director was, which ultimately was a catalyst for Nemo design. Uh, so th that seed was planted probably five, eight years before Nemo even happened. And so those guys and there's collaborations and some of the great images that we took, there's one um, with, um, well, the one in the article was Dave Downing on the wire. And that was Michael yeah. Jagger always pushing me to just, um, you know, there was a race. Burton was genius at basically putting alphas in the mountain and letting them loose and just naturally competing. So you're always, you know, you're with VNE2. So amazing. Jeff Curtis, amazing. And Vincent Scogland, um, Mark Gallup. I mean, you're on the hill with these guys and you're just trying to, you know, you always want to do your best. Yeah. And he always encouraged me to just come up with something original, something different and not fill the book. You know, success wasn't the, the many, many thousand of images. It's just having the ones that stand out. And he really taught me that lesson. He's a bit know. of a, he's, he comes up fairly frequently, Michael Jagger. He's a, I mean, Obviously, for somebody like yourself, you understand his influence clearly. But he's he's mm -hmm. he's a bit of a unappreciated influence, isn't he? Really, in a lot of ways. Agreed. That's my that, that's my impression. I mean, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't know too much about him, but I've just his name among like people mm -hmm. that were around at the time, like yourself, definitely comes up a lot as like a sort of like a you know real creative influence. I he'd be a great interview. But I think with um, Michael's very humble. Uh, he's very focused, very um, passionate about, uh, you know, the creativity that he's putting out. And I, I think if you were to make a vine like the, you know, six degrees separated from Michael Jagger and there was a grapevine, it'd be huge of all the people that have come through his camp or influenced by him. Even today at Nemo Design, I have, Still today, I think I got four or five people that work for Jagger to Paul Kemp. Um, so he had a, he had an agency here in Portland, and when that folded, a lot of those folks, our cultures are very similar, and they came over here, and they still are here. So, yeah, there's a lot of handshaking there. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a super, because that downing shot that you talk about, yeah, I mean, that's like perfect example, isn't it? I mean, one of the iconic shots, really, isn't it? And and again, it's one of those, you mm -hmm. could, sort of thing that everyone looks at or ha probably did look at, you know, like the idea of doing that, but it is suddenly mm -hmm. one of the most memorable shots ever, really. Well, it's not easy to reproduce. And then, again, it's another discipline where it took us probably... It was Marcus Eggie and Dave probably took us, I, I want to say a solid six hours, maybe five hours to build the in-run ramp to that, um, to that particular wire. And there's also, there's, um, the other one is when you work with these athletes, it's like, there's this trust that you're going to represent them in the most positive light. And so Dave's two cents was like, if I don't ride this thing for like 20 feet and land it, it doesn't get published. And so there's just a handshake that if, if the one that he doesn't ride gets thrown away. And so he did that actually did it twice. And that was just the one, the one time. And lucky for me, I just picked that angle and um, it worked out. I do, I do remember getting two hate mails, literally physical mails. People sent, they found me and they sent it to my house saying, that's unethical. You shouldn't Photoshop things um, just because you can, because that was kind of a new thing. And yeah. um, I thought that was a compliment in a lot of ways. I was a little bit put back, but then again, wow, that person took that much time and energy to write me a hate letter because they want it to be authentic. It's like, well, I got good news for you. That's the real deal. One shot. <laughs> so you said 25 shots. And you said you said a similar thing in in when we chatted for white lines. You said there was you can think of twenty shots. You said then that you like, which at the time surprised me um, mm -hmm. that there'd be so few, really. Um, yeah, funny. So there's, huh. you, well, know, you know what questions coming next though. So you know of those of those well, twenty, <laughs> we've talked about yeah. one. Um, well, what what standard out? That link in front of me. Well, I mean, creatively, it's like, um, you know, there's a couple. One is um, there's a shot of Jeff Brushy that was used for a Burton ad. And uh, it's a night shot at Stratton. He's got on a, a checkered black jacket and yellow pants and dreadlocks. So, and he's looking right down the barrel of the lens. And for me, um, it was how we on the East Coast could compete with what Bud Fawcett and Sonny Miller were doing on the West Coast when they had all the fresh powder and blue, bluebird skies. And we had um, icy pipes and skateboarding. And so it was this interpretation of snowboarding as skateboarding and bringing all that lighting up to the hill. So that was, you know, literally me willing this to come to fruition, this vision of what what would Grant Britton do? I mean, that was a big inspiration for me was Grant's work and flashes. And so in that particular shot, I dragged, uh, I had a 4,000 watt generator. I put my pickup truck and uh, I had these Novatron 400 watt flash and I had a three by five softbox, which is like unheard of at the time to bring something that wasn't water. You know, we got so many, 
cool portable strobes that are, you know, very powerful today, but not back then. And so just to connect the dots of those, of all those pieces working together was engineering in my mind. And then, um, uh, talking those guys into staying late in the pipe, getting permission from PJ and, and the staff at Stratton to stay up there and not get kicked out. And, you know, that's a liability for them too. And they, they trusted us and that shot happened. So that just was a catapult and that put me on the map is like having that skateboard look to snowboarding. And, uh, it became, you know, for the East coast as a rite of passage for any of the snowboarders coming up the ranks, like, um, Chris Wires, Russell Winfield, Jim Moran, uh, John Camp, um, Seth and Seth, Trish Burns. You know, the, the rookies had to carry up the generator and then um, <laughs> to save the energy for people like Brushy and Craig. And uh, and then we'd hit the pipe. So when Stratton came, we always try to stay post or pre and then uh, get all the big boys when they came into town, like Craig, when he came into town, it was always, you know, again, it's part of that salesmanship of talking somebody into staying late after you're tired and done a day of contest to hit that pipe. But I think that I sincerely think that people were, uh, you know, super pumped to get on that night shoot. It was definitely a, a signature thing that I did as a shooter to stand out in the crowd and look different as an artist. Yeah. So brushy. No, no question. Like one of my favorites. Um, the other one is, um, we could edit if we have to, is, uh, Jeff oh, I don't edit. is, I don't uh, edit. they stay, it stays, it comes out, <laughs> comes out like this. <laughs> awesome. There's, um, Dale Rayberg and the fork in his tongue shot. And that's another, um, just tenacity type image. It's like I had, I, this is so you know, so artsy fartsy, but I literally had a dream about this photo. Um, and I woke up and I drew a picture of it, um, on a piece of paper and I carried it with me until I could figure out how to put all the pieces together. And I don't know if you've seen the shot, but ride used it. It said ride less or ride more talk less. And they used it for a lot of like, uh, you know, at the trade shows, it was on all the rep fans and some ads and Dale, um, it was a shot made especially just for Dale. That's it. And so I had, if you look at the picture, there's a picture of a dartboard. And what I had done is um, I'd actually cut out a chin hole in the dartboard. And then I had to put this dartboard in my, my, uh, my snowboard bag. And I would travel with this thing for months waiting to be on a shoot with Dale Rayberg because I didn't know when I would see him next. Right. And then I got uh, invited to go to Island Lake Lodge to shoot the ride team at the time, uh, which is like, again, another great era. And I know that the ride guys um, are working on a movie and documentary that um, I'm oh, wow. sure you'd like to hear about. Yeah, so I, yeah. I can get you some access there because right. he's got, they got 50 interviews in the can right now. And Russell came down to work out of here and, uh, gosh, there's so many people. Wow, great! That are giving their two cents on that thing. Um, Tim Pogue just got interviewed yesterday, I guess, or this week. But uh, I digress. But that shot ended up, you know, it's got a fork in his tongue, and his brow is just furrowed, and he just looks so in pain and angry and aggro. And it's because of just Dale is just so photogenic, and then um, 
not just only when he's he's on a snowboard, but just as a um, just a lifestyle kind of guy. And he's just so cool, calm, and collected when we travel. So this is the shot. So we got to Island Lake Lodge, and it's just chaos because everybody's there's a bunch of shooters, a bunch of athletes, and I just wanted some quiet and privacy because I, I wanted to surprise everybody when the shot would come out because I just in the back of my head knew this would be the shit. And I had um, prior to that, I'd engineered a camera called the Misty Cam. And um, basically, it's a, you know, I don't want to get too tech on people, but basically, you're mixing a four by four medium format bellows camera with a Hasselblad uh, two and a quarter inch focal plane shutter camera, the FC2000, which they didn't make very many of, but I had one. And anyway, I engineered this part so I could connect it to, and then I had to manually figure out the exposure. And there's a lot of work to carrying that thing around because it weighed, it probably weighed 10 pounds. So I had to carry that around the globe too. <laughs> uh, but it gave me a signature look. And so when you saw my pictures with the Misty Cam, you knew it was a grave shot. Like that was the signature. I always wanted to be like Dan Sturt and his skate stuff. Like you knew a Sturt shot when you saw it. Like this stuff was just, just so iconic. And um, that was my artistic impression so anyway i grabbed dale and we went into the into the bunk room and there was a a reading light and i put some foil that i'd carried in the board bag over it and i kind of snooted it to kind of give it this really um almost like uh, fbi interrogator kind of light that you see in movies yeah and then and lit it just simply with one light and a, and then shot some exposures maybe a roll or two and then kind of put the whole set away and Dale, you know, didn't talk about it. We just kind of kept it a secret. And the way those shoots work is at the end, you hand all your photos into the art department and the creative teams and at ride. And then they kind of make stuff out of it, but that ended up getting a lot of play. We ended up redoing that shoot for Sony uh, for the PlayStation and we made a shitload of money. Cause they got <laughs> a lot of money over at Sony. So, um, and that's just, um, it's just, again, I, I think it's one of the, one of my favorites just because of the thought and the creative process. And just, it wasn't, um, just wasn't me documenting snowboard action, which I always appreciated, but it was me as a creative, uh, coming up with something unique and different. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was always a hallmark, you know, the creativity as well, like you say, because obviously there is the document literally documenting the feats the riders that you know but your work always has that creative edge which set it apart you know that was that was definitely <laughs> something that that stands out from the two examples that you've given and also when you look back over i mean you know going back to the clum thing like even then that, that early that early example like that it's it's just a unique take on it i guess my next question then you know you mentioned um the kind of influence of, of Michael Jagger and, and, you know, the, the seeds being planted for like a creative director role. And so when did, and I think you already mentioned like 12, 13 years was how long your photography career lasted. So when did, when did you decide to kind of go with Nemo then? How did that happen when, you know, the old sort of poacher turn gamekeeper scenario? Great question. It's like, why, where did Nemo, Inception of Nemo happen? There's a couple great stories there that, <clears throat> you know, it's the, um, really it was, uh, 
editorial trip I was doing with actually Doug Palladini, who was a publisher at uh, Snowboarder Magazine at the time, and Matt Goodwill, and um, gosh, was it Tex? No, Matt Goodwill, and gosh, I forgot who else was on it. West Makepeace, maybe. But we had did an editorial trip up to Wiggly's. So what they do at Wiggly's is uh, it's a very high-end elite helicopter resort out of uh, British Columbia. And they open up early to invite editorial people to come in, get a story so that it can publish to attract interest to potential new customers. And so we were sort of an editorial, but hey, who's complaining? I'm on a helicopter for free eating sushi at night. Life's <laughs> tough, right? Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. And might as um, well be you. Mike Wiggly's. <laughs> yes. May as well be me. That's a, that is the perk for sure. Getting paid too to do it. Um, so Doug set me up on that trip and we ended up, um, Mike Wiggly is a great story too. The guy's just the purest of all beings. And, and it's interesting because snowboarding, he early on to allow snowboarding at a heli resort uh, and didn't see, didn't see color, I guess. There's sort of a prejudice against snowboarding back then, but he allowed us in, which was great. <clears throat> and um, we got to go up and it's sort of the weather is starting to move in and we were going through this burn, like um, this forest had been burned maybe the year before. So it was all these just black sticks. It looked like something from Sleepy Hollow. And I was, you know, I'm a little slower than the other guys. And then they're all going to the bottom and I hit a snag. And so there was just a tree that was down, but it was just enough under the snow. I didn't see it. So my front foot went through it and caught and hit. And then just, you know, you do the cartwheel and yeah, and you crash. And I thought I broke my leg. So I'm down and I'm like feeling it. And the guide comes over. He's an Austrian guide. And, Again, we were talking about accents earlier. He goes, you must get up, get down the hill or we will be stuck out here. No sushi for you. And it's like, oh, great. <laughs> so, because um, the way it goes there, you have to, you know, you have to fly the helicopter by visuals. And if they can't see, you get these, um, those metal blankets to sleep in overnight. And that's, you know, they tell you that at the front door and it's like, oh, great. And of course you want to have a good meal. So yeah, I get my ass down, get in the helicopter we go back. I, I literally had to cut my boot off um, and it turned purple and swollen up. And so you're like, man, I am so screwed. Like, and it dawned on me as like, wow, this is Thanksgiving. So it's so November 27th. That means if my leg is broke, that's three months. So I don't get money for December, January, and February. Maybe I'll get back in March. And I also understand that if I'm not available, my customers are going to take on the next shooter and it's going to go to, you know, Sean Sullivan or Bud Fawcett or, you know, Vinny or somebody else is going to get my work. And so maybe they'll fall in love with them and then I'm out. And then what I, the aha for me was if this finger, this middle finger isn't clicking the button, I'm not making money. And if I'm not making money, then I can't have, you know, a home and other things that I had visioned for my, for my life, uh, just as a, as a person. So I started thinking like, oh, what else can I do? And then, um, and again, that's where Michael Jagger kind of comes into the picture because, you know, I saw what he had built with his agency and then, and I'd thought about some of the art directors 
and creative directors I'd worked at at agencies like Wyden and Kennedy, um, like um, some folks down at Ray Gun Magazine um, that were, you know, pompous. They were just sort of like my way or the highway, and they're just super hard and difficult to work with. And um, I go, man, there's got to be a better way. And so really the idea of a boutique agency that does the creative and is collaborative and not um, a dick would be a point of interest in something different entrepreneurially in the market. Uh, and that's what Jagger represented to me. I think his, I think his management style was a lot like that. And, um, and that was, you know, that was, he was like a mentor, not directly, but just, uh, I, I could see monkey see monkey do and kind of emulate what he was doing. So I pay attention. So now it took another three years in order for Nemo to actually manifest itself. Um, but in the meantime, now when I was on all these commercial shoots for big companies, big agencies, I would pay attention. I'd keep the photo briefs. I'd keep anything. I'd have dinner with all the creative directors, not with the talents or the athletes. I would make myself um, learn through uh, the interactions with the experts that were already doing it to learn about how to do it. And that's where um, the, really the premise of Demo came in. And the other thing was like, you know, you have, I've mentioned too, is that most of the agencies, even Jagger, Apollo Kemp, Wyden and Kennedy, they sound like lawyers. You know, it's like, I kind of thought that was lame. So the three of us thought of the name uh, Nemo, which means nobody. It's, so it's more of an umbrella to have a collective group of people. Because I thought, you know, if I have collective, I have really good gifted people, why would they want to make me money? Graves, Bartell, like agency, like... Nobody, if they're any good, why would they even stick around? Why don't they start their own name brand agency? And so Nemo was just sort of a catch-all there, and that's why the name um, Nemo as opposed to yeah, the other lawyer-type names. And that was something different in the market at the time. Fast, nimble. There's maybe in Portland at the time, it's 1999. There's maybe three or four agencies like that. Cinco, who's still in business today. Sumo and uh, Nemo. So we're sort of this boutique that was going up against Wyden and Kennedy. I think the first time I remember being aware of Nemo was Robot Food. You, you had some involvement in that, right? Yeah, Robot Food is a great uh, chapter and another just great example of um, just tenacity of getting the vision done. <clears throat> yeah, Pierre and Jess... Uh, we were, gosh, what was that? Oh, one, two, we worked on, we did the intros of the box designs for robot food movies, which was really awesome energy because like Jess Gibson, I've shared an office with him ever since then. Actually, I see him every day and, um, they, and he was the antithesis of what was going on. Cause Jess and Gibby are Pierre were working at standard films and they just want to do something different, more fun, heart light, lighthearted. And, you know, they teamed up with Bobby Meeks and UC and those guys. And it became the, the formula for the movie. And I, I still think that energy is still contagious today. And I think it's really what snowboarding is about is those movies for me. Anyway, I didn't grow up in that, but I think it's still what I think the representation is fun and, 
spontaneous and anything goes the music um you know it's still a soundtrack i listen to in the car so yeah robot food yeah i think if you i think even now if you ask anyone you know top five influential snowboard films it's gonna be up there isn't it it's like it's it's aged so well as, as, as a piece of work hasn't it essentially yeah yeah there is um yeah, it was, it's funny because we'll get it, – it's every year. There's It gets less and less as the years go on, but there's always somebody that figures out through the credits, Nemo, and then they do the homework on Google, and they find me and send me an email and go, hey, can I get a DVD or a poster or something? Um, <laughs> really? So, you know, That's great. Throw Gibby under the bus. He gets all cranky and doesn't want to do the fanboy stuff, but I'm always digging around. There's Yeah, there's archives here go get the damn DVD and put it in the box. Cause somebody really wants it. So why not make somebody's yeah. day today? Yeah, yeah, anything to make a smile. Yeah. So obviously we've kind of covered the two halves of your career. Really? Um, I guess kind of getting towards the, the end really, but, um, what are you proudest of? Is it, is it cause, cause for you, you know, like, someone like me kind of saying, Hey, let's talk about all these old snowboarding stories. But obviously, you know, Nemo is something that you've poured your heart and soul into for like, as you've described, like 20 of year, 20 odd years. Does it, does it get, does it ever get frustrating being defined by the part of your career that happened back then rather than the work that you've done since, if that's not too impolite a question. So I still, you know, even this call here is like, I still get uh, called upon on the old photo stuff when I still feel a lot of my personality is that photographer. Um, and I don't feel slighted by Nemo. I think it's actually given me a lot of freedoms in that I don't have to be pulling the trigger to kind of make a living. And I get to collaborate with lots of really cool people daily. And so it's more than just the Trevor show when you're a shooter. It's just like, it's the Nemo show and there's all the people here. And I'm surprised too, because Liz Martindale's here today working on a big photo shoot uh, we've got going for North Face and she's, her, her laugh is contagious. And so it's been, I've missed that through the whole year of COVID. Hmm. Like you just don't hear her laughing. So yeah. Um, and then, so I don't feel defined by it. And I do probably, there's probably some deep psychology of like, I do identify as Nemo. Oh, you're the Nemo guy or Hey, but, um, I'm also a business person and understand like I got to ch- ch- separate the two, uh, just to keep it healthy for both. I got my Trevor personality and then that's the guy at home with the wife and kids. And then TG is usually the guy that comes into work and, uh, you know, gets, gets whatever needs to get done for Nemo that day. And what are you proudest of when you look back? Proud. That's funny. I'm so modest sometimes. I just don't think about moments of being proud. I think when I first heard it was, um, the you know, in the COVID, I was just proud of the stance that we took uh, and really the, you know, the extracurricular homework to figure out what a PPP loan program was all about uh, because it really did save the company in a lot of ways. Um, so I'm, most recently, I'm just really proud of making those decisions early 
and I'm proud of the decision to keep people employed and insured through the pandemic. So um, I'm really proud of that stuff. There's, you know, the obvious thing too, at first that comes is proud of my kids. You know, my, my adults now are on and moving in their lives and they're going to be good people in society and not some of the dirtbag stuff that we've seen in the city this year. So I feel my wife and I have done a good enough job that they're not going to be a problem to society. So I'm very proud of that. And that's the bar being way too low. They're going to do way better than that. So I'm proud of those kids. The, um, that was pretty simple. I'm sure you could prod something out of me, but that's what I can think of off the top of my head. Well, it's a tough, <laughs> tough question. And, um, I empathize with the, I mean, when I look at your career, and look at what you've achieved. It strikes me that you're probably one of these people that does does the work and then doesn't dwell on it. You know, does does yeah. the work, gets it done, and then moves on, and doesn't define themselves by the last job. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah that's a dangerous formula for sure. I, I know what it is actually. Like in 2000, I won the Crystal Awards. Uh, Danny Kiwi Meyer. Kiwi's thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like Kiwi and I have had a relationship for many, many years. And then um, that was, again, as we started, I wanted to be the best snowboard photographer in the world. And that's really the only playing field that I could actually prove that I was. And the beauty is I was voted by my peer group to be the winner that day, that week. And so, um, yeah, contests are good good, bad, who knows, but it was really a proud moment to have, uh, you know, been the top dog that day. So yeah, I was really proud of that. Yeah. It was really ahead of its time when you think back to that. Oh yeah. Red Bulls fully poached that formula. No question. Yeah. Yeah. Danny, Danny's another one to um, keep trying to pin down for this thing. Another, uh, very unsung hero let's say yeah of uh of the culture and he's in he's in france so he sh- should be able to get on a time zone quicker with him yeah yeah you're right i'm gonna hit him up actually yeah hey trevor thanks man that was great yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it thanks for taking time to do it thank you you made my day it's like it's always fun to talk about that stuff and uh yeah reminisce so there you go that was me and trevor talking all things snowboarding and i hope you enjoyed it I'm sure it's the same for surf and skate photographers, but snowboarding photographers really are a different breed. And I think that chat with Trevor gets to the heart of that unique combination of passion and an at times almost sociopathic work ethic that's required to make that role a success. thought there was plenty to take away from that episode. Um, On a lot of levels, you know, there's this shred geekery, which I'm sure a lot of people are responding to. But, you know, that was... A few peerless insights there in the nature of entrepreneurship and basically how to have a successful career. I mean, Trevor's had two and he did give up the goods there. So, um, yeah, hope you got a lot out of it. I mentioned white lines at the beginning. We are on housekeeping corner now, if you're wondering. And I'm happy to say that the UK's favourite snowboarding magazine, Yes, I Am Biased, is returning this year for another print annual which is great. And I've been asked to write a column for that one on the old, should we keep politics out of snowboarding question? Working title right now is we need to talk about Nicholas. That was Ed Blumfield's suggestion. 
we're still working that one out. It should be an interesting one. I think you'll agree. I've been thinking about this a lot recently, thanks to reactions to recent episodes. And I ran a couple of things over on my Instagram over at We Look Sideways, exploring the question, which elicited some very interesting responses. Anyway, huge thanks for taking the time to tune into my show this week. I was thinking about this the other day. Fuck me, there's a lot of action sport podcasts out there these days. I mean, the landscape has changed remarkably in the four years since I started doing this. Back when I started, I mean, this was the whole pitch, really. There really were only a couple of podcasts out there if you're into skateboarding, surfing and snowboarding. I mean, now there's a shitload of them. And there's a huge amount of choice, especially now that some of the biggest names out there have recently launched their own shows. I mean, take a look at, for example, even in skateboarding, Tony Hawk just launched a show. Blondie McCoy's got a show on there. He's had Mark Gonzalez and Naomi Campbell as guests recently. You know, there's some people really pulling in a bit of clout to put out stuff. I'm going to be interested to see how they all last. Um, I don't think it's you know, much, I'm not overstating it when I say it's a lot of work, this, and, you know, I'm coming up to episode 200, insofar as, like, chronologically, I've put out nearly 200, I think I'm up to, like, 158, but if you include the bonuses and the type 2 episodes, we're nearly getting to 200 episodes, it's a remarkable amount of work required to stick with this, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it pans out but there's a lot of choice out there and if you're still tuning into my little show then thanks and I just want to say it's not something I take for granted because obviously you really could be listening to any number of people plowing the same furrow hopefully the way I handle the cultures and the worlds we love is still individual and unique enough to keep this thing thriving so big thanks for the support and as ever if you want to dig a little bit deeper then head to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, where you'll find full show notes. People are often surprised the level of detail on the show notes, actually. It is a lot of detail. There's a lot of links. There's a lot of stuff to dig into. If you've found things in the conversation interesting, the show notes are a great, great way of exploring further. You can also find the archive. Every episode is on there. You can also sign up for my newsletter, which goes out every Friday and alternates between the 10 things I think are worth sharing that week. And then every other week, a larger long form piece from either myself or one of my guests. If you like the podcast, you'll probably like the newsletter. To be honest, if you do want to support the show, I think you know what I'm going to say. You could do worse than buy a book while you're at the website. There's a big tab that says a book and uh, there's a link there to buy it. It continues to show up in all kinds of weird and wonderful places looking sideways volume one. I continue to be very tickled by people sharing their copies just the other day. You know, I've had people in Australia, America, Brazil, France, all around the world. This thing is is reaching out. If you've supported the show and uh, planted a flag for the type of ad-free world you want to live in, in which creators get fairly rewarded for their work, then you know what to do. Um, all right, a final housekeeping corner mentioned to say thanks to everybody who got in touch to express enthusiasm about the idea I've been floating in recent weeks to run some kind of media apprentice contest turns out there's a lot of enthusiasm for this idea so I'm going to launch it later in the summer I've got quite a bit on in July so I'm going to wait till August and um, as I mentioned before if any brands want to get involved with this idea then you know where to find me podcast at we are looking sideways.com being a good place to start 
All right, thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Nice one. Mm-hmm.